Good morning. This morning we're continuing in our series on Second and Third John, and last week we looked at our walk. The series is called uh, "Follow Me," and it's a discipleship series talking about our walk with Jesus. Last week we looked at our walk in truth. Uh, we looked at the first couple of verses of Second John, and this week we look at our walk in love, uh, verses five and six of the same book. Uh, look in your service folder. You'll find there the text. It's on page. Eight, and you can find some sermon notes there as well. I'll read the verses and then um, we'll get into the message. It says this, And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I'm just going to take 60 seconds to give you a a background to this. If you're new to us or you're new to the series, the uh, person writing is John, the disciple of Jesus. Uh, He's famous for being in Jesus' inner circle. He saw many of Jesus' great events that many of the other disciples didn't get to, uh, the transfiguration. He was there at the cross during the crucifixion. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, church history tells us that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, the writer of these letters, went into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and particularly the city of Ephesus. Today you can still go to Ephesus around the ruins. There's a church there called, uh, named after him. It's believed that he might even be buried there, but that's besides the point. He did ministry in that area, and he was also exiled uh, for his faith under Domitian, the emperor at that time, to an island called Patmos, where he wrote Revelation and uh, perhaps some of these letters, but we're not for certain. So John is writing, and he calls himself an elder earlier on, and he's writing, as you saw in verse 5, and you heard last week, to a dear lady. The lady may be an individual of nobility, or, as some commentators say, and there's strong evidence of this too, that he's writing this as a code word for a congregation that he's writing to, because he would have been passing this letter on to a congregation, whether it was an individual believer, whether it was a congregation we know that this letter would have been passed throughout the churches as encouragement about how to walk in truth, how to walk in love, and you're going to hear the other themes as we go throughout the series. So this letter is an encouragement to believers about how to walk in faith with Jesus. And here's the interesting thing that he says about uh, their walk in love. He says that there was this command that was given them from the very beginning. Did you catch that? Two times he says, you're given a command at the very beginning. What is the beginning? Well, some people say, and you can read the commentators, they say, well, this could be the beginning of time when God put love in our hearts, or maybe this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry because that was when Jesus ushered in the kingdom of heaven and this new commandment that he would give to love one another. Uh, But if you look at verse 6 a little bit more, you'll see this. He says, as you have heard from the beginning. In other words, there's this command that was given to them From the time that they heard the gospel, from the time that they came to faith in Christ, this command was here. It's like a big light switch went on when they learned about Jesus. And this command that they learned from the very beginning was to love. And if you can understand this correctly, when you come to faith in Jesus, when you hear the good news about him for you, there's a big light switch that goes on that changes your life forever that says, Now I want to walk in obedience and I want to walk in love to God and to other people like I never have before. 
Sometimes we talk about it in church terms as our, our walk or our sanctification, the way that we learn to love one another after we come to faith. This is very important to John, and he wants to teach them to walk and to live in this love. But it was in that moment when they came to faith, hearing the word of God, when they were baptized and faith was created in their heart by the Holy Spirit, that they said all of a sudden, now there's this new love in my life. And the point that John is making as he uses this word love is that love does not begin with you. It doesn't start with you and me. It can't start with you and me. You're going to find yourself thinking, but I want love to start with me. That's the place that I that that's the place that it begins. And actually, every almost every world religion says that you need to be the one to to love. But if you go down that road, and if you believe that love starts with you, that you are the genesis and the origin of love, you're going to find yourself in one of two boats. The first boat is the boat of despair. They're full of people like you and me, who believe that love starts within us. And they fly the flag that says, love your neighbor. But this boat, it has mirrors in it. And when they look into the mirror and they fly the flag, love your neighbor, the people on this boat are brutally honest with themselves. They look into the mirror and they say, you know what? I'm supposed to love other people. Love starts with me. And I'm supposed to be kind and compassionate to other people. But you know what? I haven't written all of my Christmas thank you cards yet. I haven't been kind and loving. Um, If I'm honest with myself looking in this mirror, I haven't been as compassionate as I can be. I've been quick to condemn. I've not treated other people like I've been treated. And so although I'm on this ship, I feel extremely depressed and you're going to be crushed if you believe that love starts with you. That's boat number one. It's a sad boat. Boat number two is the boat of hypocrisy. They're full of people like you and me who believe that love starts within them, but they don't have any mirrors. There was a mutiny, and they threw all the mirrors overboard because guess what? It's too hard to look in the mirror and to see the monster that is there, and so the captain got rid of all of the mirrors, and instead of mirrors, they have piles and piles of books. It's actually sinking the ship. These books are full of more laws about how to love. They fly the flag that says love your neighbor as well, but they get very specific about how to love your neighbor. And they say on this ship, and remember you and I are on this ship, they say you must love your neighbor this way. You must have your kids memorize so many Bible verses so that they can be right with God. You must bat over 900 in church attendance. You must be a leader of a connect group or trying to be a leader of a connect group if you want to be right with God. And they, they pile on these books and they're so high up, they don't even see the fact that their love is empty. In fact, Jesus talked about the people on boat number two. One time he said this, he says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. People on the ship number one are looking at people on ship number two and they're saying, I could never do that. And people on ship number two don't know this, but Jesus is saying their ship is sinking too. And the flag that they're flying, love your neighbor, hypocrisy. So, what ship do you find yourself on? I'll tell you, uh, if you're like me, you might find yourself on ship one one day And then if you're having a really good day, you're going to find yourself on ship two. And in fact, depending on your mood, you might even jump from ship to ship time to time. 
But both ships, I'll tell you this, are going under. People on ship number one are jumping off of it because it's a miserable one. And people on ship number two, they don't know it, but they're sinking all those books. Enter agape. You remember a couple minutes ago I said, love does not begin with you. This word is incredible, and recently I was looking at this word and studying it a little bit more and uh, finding out more about what this word agape or agapao, the word that the New Testament writers used to describe love. And it's really, it's really a neat study. There's about four words for love in Greek. Agapao, up to the time of Jesus, in secular usage of the Greek, did not have a very specific meaning. In fact, it was kind of like a throwaway word for love. It was a word that was synonymous or maybe it used as a fill-in for phileo, a general love like Philadelphia, brotherly love, or eros, a sexual love. It would be used as a fill-in word for those. But until the time of Jesus, this word didn't have a great deep meaning. Some people said that the only meaning that it had was love for the sake of the object. Love for the sake of the object. And so it's interesting that John and all of the other gospel writers, do you know what word that they generally adopted throughout all of their writing for love of God? Agape. And it was the first time that that word finally got its meaning. And its meaning isn't derived, and this is interesting. I was reading a uh, commentary by Bill Mounts. He wrote an entire uh, dictionary of Old and New Testament words. He says, the meaning of agapao does not come from the Greek, but from the biblical understanding of God's love. In other words, when Jesus came and these New Testament writers wrote about love, they picked the most generic word, and now that word itself is defined by the love of God. Can I give you an example that you know? What word is used in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Love for the sake of the object. That's why John says, love does not start with you. It can't start with you. You're going to find yourself either depressed or a hypocrite. But when you realize that the word agapao and the love of God, the love for the sake of the object... And here's what's more incredible than just the fact of that whole dictionary thing. The object of God's love is not just the world in general, but you, specifically you. Um, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, it says that after he, talking about the Messiah, suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, think about this with me. What would cause Jesus to go to the cross and to suffer an incredibly painful physical death and to go through hell to be completely cut off from God? And then, at the end of it all, he's raised from the dead and he says, that was worth it. What kind of compensation was he looking for because he went to the cross and went through this incredible agony? And you know what's worth it? You. He would be satisfied because he could have you back. What great love, agape, sake for the sake of the object that God has for me. Um, getting back to John. Do you remember in the Gospel of John the way that John wrote himself into 
the historical account of Jesus? Uh, he didn't call himself John. What did he call himself? What, Stacy? He was the disciple whom God loved. And going my entire childhood, you know, I was taught, and I read the commentaries today, the commentators will say, well, yeah, he was in the inner circle. And you know what? There's some evidence that he might have been related to Jesus, and so he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Or some people say, you know, he got the seat next to Jesus at the table, so he got to brag. And I thought, man, John's a real narcissist. (laughs) But then this week I was thinking, was he? And all that might be true, but maybe he wrote that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved because he really truly believed and was amazed. Me? And every time that he wrote it down, he thought to himself, I'm going to write it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm the disciple whom he loved. I'm the person that he loved. I'm the one. He picked me. Can you believe that? And now that is love. And that is understanding God's love. When you finally realize that you are written into God's book and he says, you are the one that I love. You are the one that I gave my life for. You're the one that I'm satisfied with going to the cross and enduring hell for because I want to forgive you. What great love. A love for me. Um... Charles Wesley writes this, And can it be that should I gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And that's the difference between a religious person and a person following Jesus. The difference between a religious person and a person following Christ is work versus walk. The religious person, you maybe heard about them, they live on boat number two. They're obsessed with works, but for a good and pious reason, they believe that they're loving their neighbor and that they're loving God, but really they shrink God down and they put him in their pocket for a later date. The person on that boat is thinking to themselves, I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to be nice to other people. I'm going to love them. I'm going to be obedient to God. I'm even going to write rules that go beyond the rules so that I can be good with God so that at the end of life, I can pull God out of the drawer and I can say, okay, God, give me what I deserve. The religious person. Is there a real relationship there? No. In fact, uh, there's a story about this in the Bible. Uh, The story is uh, the prodigal son, it's the second son, just like the second boat. The second son in that story, when that naughty boy came home and was forgiven by father, and dad threw a big party for him, do you remember the attitude of the second son towards the father's love? He was irate. He was mad. This is unfair. And he went up to dad, he pulled dad out of the party, and do you know what he said to him? I have slaved away for you for all of these years, shrinking God, putting him in your pocket and saying, I work for you. Actually, it's saying, God, you work for me. I slave for you. I need my paycheck. But for the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
It's kind of like this. You know, you work a week. Imagine this. You work a week, and you're a religious person and I, in, in a spiritual sense that I just explained. And you, you get your check, and you open it up, and you say, okay, yep, 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 I got paid for that. Did he get my overtime? I don't know. I got to check with HR on that, and you put it in your pocket. But then you're, you're a, a follower of Christ, and you work a week, and you, you, say, you get called in, and they say, yeah, we have an envelope for you. You say, what? Really? And then you get the envelope, and you open it up, and you say, Hey, is anybody else around here getting this? Did, did you get paid? Can you believe this? I'm getting money for doing this? This is unbelievable. The attitude towards God's love is the same way. It's like receiving something that you never would expect. And for the, the, the Christian that's walking in that, they're excited to walk with their God, not to work for their God or to have their God work for them. And that, that changes your life completely and your attitude towards one another. Uh, up to this point, you might be saying, Pastor, you're talking an awful lot about God's love for me when this passage specifically is talking about what? Love for one another. And that's my point. That is the point. When that light switch went on, imagine John going around to all those different congregations and he's turning that light switch on in their life and, and people are saying, for me too? He says, yeah, for me too. And they said, really? Incredible. Jesus did that for me. God loves me that much. And John says, yes, he did. I was an eyewitness to it. I can tell you more and more stories if you want to. And they believe in God. And the light switch goes on. And then they say this. They say, what? What can I do? What can I do? And you know what John might say? I'm using my sanctified imagination now. John might say, can I tell you what you should do now? Surprise. Everyone around you with your love. I want you to surprise everyone with the unconditional love that you show to them because you've had this love in your life. Let me tell you a story. This one time Jesus told his disciples to go ahead into um, Jerusalem to prepare a Passover meal in an upper room. And uh, all of us disciples, we went ahead. Of course, he's our master. He's our teacher. He's, he's our rabbi. He's the one that we respect so much. We were going to do this for him and we wanted to serve him. And we set up this great meal. We all sat down to the Passover meal. And can you believe this? Now listen to this. John's talking to his new convert. We sat down to the meal. Jesus stood up. He took off his outer cloak. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He got down onto his knees and washed all of our feet. Jesus did that. And then he said, just as I have done for you, you do for others. I was so surprised. You should have seen the look on Peter's face. I mean, he, he insisted that he washed the feet. And Jesus says, no, this is the kind of love I want you to show to other people. To go out of your way. To surprise people with your love in a way that they're just going to blow them away just like you're excited and surprised about the gospel in your life. And that brings me to a story called An Old Man Running. Um... It was a, a historian named Clement of Alexandria who, who tells this true story. It's, he's a church historian about born 150 A.D., so he's a very near contemporary of John himself. And he wrote about John and the stories that were handed down to him from the apostles. And he claims this is a true story. Uh, he says that after Domitian, remember that emperor, after he was out of power, uh, the next emperor uh, lessened the persecution on the Christians and John was released from captivity or from, um, from Patmos where he was on the island. John went back to Ephesus and the areas around Asia Minor, according to his account, 
And he started to do missionary work as a very old man now. We call him a Jim Radloff. Okay? And if you're new to us, and we want you to hang around and learn what that means more. Okay? So here is John going around from city to city, and he converts a young man. And this young man is put into the care of the bishop of the town. John says, I want you to take care of this friend of mine. He just came to Christ. He's young, and I want you to take care of him. But I'm going to keep on going, right? Sounds like Jim. And he keeps on going around and making disciples, and uh, maybe months pass and years pass, and he comes back to that town, and he goes to the bishop, and he says to the bishop, where is this young man? Um, I want to see him again. And the bishop said, he died. And John said, what sort of death might I assume that he died? And the bishop said, he's dead to God. He, he wasn't really dead. He died to God. He fell away from faith. And John tore, he rent his clothes, Clement writes. And uh, he even said, what kind of caregiver are you? But, he said, what was the story? That, well, how did he fall away? And the bishop said, he fell into a bad crowd that went off and did revelry and and now he's he became part of a gang of robbers in the mountain and not only is he a part of the gang of robbers but he's actually the chief of the gang of robbers that live in the mountains and if you go near it it's not a safe place to go and it was well known in the town that you didn't want to go near the mountain uh, because this young man and his band of robbers would would rob you maybe even murder you and so John immediately said and this is the amazing part about this story he says get me a horse And sure enough, the bishop gets him a horse. And imagine this old man and his knees, they must be sore. And he, he must not have a lot of energy that's, that's, that's there. But he jumps onto the horse and he rides right for that mountain. This is the way the story was told. And he rides into the mountain and sure enough, the robbers kidnap him. And he says, for this reason, I wanted to be kidnapped. Bring me to your leader, knowing that that leader was the young man. And sure enough, the robbers brought this old man to the leader And there he was uh, sitting uh, in the cave. And John approaches him. And as he approaches him, the the leader, the young man, sees who it is. And he is armed. He jumps up and he runs away. And John doesn't give up. It says that John ran after him. And you can imagine who was the one running to the tomb of Jesus and bragged about it. He still had it. And he ran after this young man out of the cave and he chased him down. He chased him down. And he said this, uh, this is what Clement writes, But John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all his might, crying out, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me? Thine own father, unarmed, aged, pity me, my son, fear not. Thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death, as the Lord suffered death for us. For thee I will give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ hath sent me. And at that, the story goes, The man dropped to his knees, he dropped his weapon, and began to cry. John went up to him and he put his arms around him, assured him of his Savior's forgiveness, and brought him home again. Talk about catching a guy off guard with love. In closing, I'm not going to write more books about how you should love or tell you who exactly that you should love because the people sitting around you, the people in your neighborhoods, the people in your community, all of them are people that Jesus died for. All of them are objects of his love. But think about this in closing. Go out of your way to love. Practice a love that goes out of your way. That might mean jumping on a horse 
and chasing that person down. But it might also mean going to people that aren't of your own class. Not going to the people that you're comfortable with. Maybe it's a different ethnicity. But going to a people, maybe it's people that are hard to love like a boss. Because maybe you've been mistreated. And to catch them off guard with love and for them to say, that's odd (laughs) that they're chasing after me with a horse and telling me that I'm loved by Jesus and forgiven. And the very same love that you expect to be loved with, instead of expecting to be loved with that love, think about that huge bank of love that you have from God that says to another person, this love is for you as well. And I'm going to go out of my way to show it with my words and with my actions. And if there's a strange relationship between you and them, there's no fear in going to them because you have that huge bank of love. And if it's coming to them and saying, I'm wrong and I messed up in the past and I was the one that wasn't clear and I wasn't the one that met the expectations, just say it. You're forgiven. It's all wiped away so that you can love with an unexpected love so that you can love for the sake of the person, not for the sake of getting something out of them. Walk in truth. Walk in obedience. And when they have questions, when they have questions about, well, what is it that you believe about sexuality? What is it believe about what you believe about human life? What is it that you believe about this and that other thing? Remember obedience that he talks about, and last week we talked about truth. God wants them to know, first of all, what? That they are loved. And when they get that, then they get the walk with God, the walk in the obedience. Lead them to your Savior. Your Savior loves you, and he loves you for your sake. Amen.